What are the parameters of the mitzvah of Shemitah? Is it that we may not work the land in Israel, or is that the land in Israel may not be worked? How does it work during Shemitah? Does the farmer have to formally relinquish control over his property? Or is it automatic that his property is open season for everybody else? And how do the laws as they govern the land during Shemitah compare to how the laws governing debts work during Shemitah? Do we relinquish debts? Or is it automatically taken from us? And all of this also links to the spiritual lesson of what Shemitah represents. The Rambam writes about the mitzvah of Shemitah as follows. Mitzvah saseh, there's a positive mitzvah. That we should rest, we should desist from working the land or working trees during the seventh year. Shenema is the passage. In our parasha, that the land should rest. And the Pasuk also says that we have to rest specifically from plowing the field and from harvesting the field. So there's this analysis that is a well-known analysis. Is the mitzvah that the land should rest? Which is what it sounds like from our parasha. That's what it sounds like. That the land should have a Shabbos, should have a time of rest. Same principle in the Pasuk. Same thing, that there should be this year of rest for the land. As the Rambam himself writes, that the mitzvah is that the land should rest from being worked during Shemitah. So that's one possibility, that the mitzvah is the land needs to rest. Or, alternatively, or it could be that the mitzvah is that people don't work the land. Like the other pasuk that says, plowing and harvesting, which are human activities, you have to rest. As the Rambam said in the first quotation, that it is a mitzvah for us to rest, to desist from working either the land or trees. So which one is it? Is it a mitzvah for the land to rest or a mitzvah for us to leave the land alone? When you get into the details that there's a specific prohibition against working your field, planting your field, pruning your vine, etc. That's very clear that that's obviously referring to the person. The person may not do those activities, may not work the land. But the question is principally, in concept, is the concept of Shemitah a concept that the land needs to rest or a concept that we may not work on the land? And they'll have a practical application. Or at least one of the nafkaminas. So if we go with the view that the mitzvah of Shemitah is that the land needs to rest, then it makes no difference who works the land, it would be a problem. And therefore, So if I had a piece of land and a non-Jewish person worked my land, so the non-Jewish person is obviously not obligated by mitzvahs, if the requirement is that the land should rest, then I've done an avera by allowing the non-Jewish person to work on my property. Whereas, if the mitzvah is that I'm not allowed to work the land, then I could have a non-Jewish person working in my field on the Shemitah, 
And there's no problem. So we really need to understand, is it an issue that the land fundamentally has to rest, or is it that we may not work? Now, similarly, so here's another dimension or perspective on the mitzvahs of, of Shemitah and a similar kind of analysis. The Pasuk says, that what happens on the Shemitah, besides the fact that we don't work the land, we have to abandon the land, literally retract our hands from the land. So the question is, in order to restrict myself from the product of my land, right? So the mitzvah is I'm not allowed to work the land. In addition to that, there's a mitzvah that I'm not allowed to take ownership of the product of my land. So do I have to physically do something or say something to declare it all ownerless, hefker? Like the Rambam says, in Sefer HaMitzvah, that we have to relinquish ownership over anything that grows. Over Sefer Hayad, or as he says in Mishnah Torah, that we have to relinquish anything that grows, even if we didn't plant it during Shemitah. So do we have to actively release control over our produce? Or is it as if it's like a royal edict that r- rips away our ownership over our own produce? Or is it from a perspective that the Torah neutralized our ownership, like the concept of Hefger based in Hefger, that the courts have the authority to remove somebody's ownership over their own assets? So maybe that's what happens. The Torah removes our ownership over our assets and we don't have to do anything. Okay, so two questions. Is the, <clears throat> the prohibition against working the land that the land has to rest or that we are not allowed to work the land? And is the prohibition against using the produce that grows during Shemitah that we have to actually, actively relinquish our rights to it? Or does it happen automatically by royal edict from Hashem? Now again, we'll see a similar distinction between whichever angle we choose to look at this. So let's say there's a scenario of a farmer who refuses to relinquish ownership over the product of his field. So for example, he, he puts up a fence. He locks up his field or his vineyard. So now, if the Torah requires the owner of the field to intentionally relinquish ownership, Let's say that now the person, obviously they did the wrong thing. They put up a, a fence around the field, so they're not able to fulfill this mitzvah to let it all go. So in spite of the fact that the owner of the field would have transgressed the requirement to let everything go, if he hasn't done so and somebody else takes their fruit, they're a ganav. Person who would take that fruit without permission from the owner would actually be committing a crime. Because in spite of the fact that the owner behaved inappropriately, it's still his produce. So somebody else takes it without permission, that's stealing. And we'll get to the end in a second. But if it's a divine decree, then Well, then I can walk into the person's field and take the produce because it's not theirs. They should have decided it's not theirs. It doesn't matter how much they scream and, and protest. It's not theirs. So there are practical differences. And there's another practical difference, very obvious one. 
The halacha is that any product that grows during Shmita, grows wildly during Shmita, you do not give Meiser from that produce. Because there are ownerless fruits or grains, so they don't get given to the Levian. So now, if the mitzvah is that the owner has to formally relinquish his rights to that produce, then then by virtue of the fact that he refuses to relinquish ownership of this fruit, it obviously still belongs to a person. If it still belongs to a person, it requires meiser. But if what happens is that it's Hefker, why? Because there's a Torah decree that whether you like it or not, these fruits and this produce is taken from you. And it doesn't matter if the person hasn't done or said anything that they were supposed to say in order to make it Hefker. Who cares? It's not that person's produce, so it's automatically exempt from Maestras. Okay, so these are the questions we have to try and work out. Now, Avol Shalom, it is possible to argue. Let's go to that scenario. The hard-headed individual who says, I don't care that it's Shemitah, I'm not willing to relinquish my rights to my produce. And what do we say about him? That we say, in all likelihood, in spite of the fact that the person doesn't want to relinquish their rights, he shouldn't have to give Maisa from the fruit because Hashem overrode his rights. The truth is that you can even say, even according to, to the view that says, well, he was, he was required to relinquish his authority and he hasn't done so. And I know you're going to think logically that therefore he should have to give Maisa. Guess what? He doesn't for a very simple reason. Because why is it that fruit that belongs to the Shemitah year is exempt from Miser? Not because in practice it is right now ownerless, but because the status of this particular produce is it needs to be ownerless. In other words, let's explain. Let's look at, you've got six years in the agricultural cycle, and then the seventh year of Shemitah. Now, in the six years of the agricultural cycle, there are different years when you are required to give different maestros. In the first, second, fourth, and fifth years, a person had to separate 10% to use as maestros, which you had to eat, but in your shalim. In the third and the sixth year, that same 10%, instead of being Maiser Shani, was Maiser for the poor. So now, obviously, we don't want a person to have to have such a burden. Imagine giving away 20% of their yield in a single year to be too much. So the Torah alternates. Sometimes it's Maiser Shani and sometimes it's Maiser Oni. But let's just say, what happens if the first year goes by and the person does not take Maiser Shani? Nobody is going to suggest that all of Los says Maiser Oni, that if he doesn't give Maiser Shani, he now has to give Maiser Oni. For a very obvious reason. The produce in the first year of the six-year cycle has no responsibility to the poor. In terms of Maiser Oni. 
In other words, we can understand that there are certain yields of the field that are not part of certain obligations. So, Likewise, let's look at the produce of Shemitah. Because the Torah demands that a person relinquish their ownership of that produce. Whether they do it or not doesn't change the fact this produce was intended to be exempt from Meiser. Even if in practice, the particular owner of this particular field did not choose to relinquish his rights, doesn't matter. It's like the particular guy who didn't take Meiser Shani. We're not now going to impose Meiser on him because he didn't do Meiser Shani. He didn't do it. It's his problem. He's got to do Tshuva. But the produce doesn't now suddenly become taxed by a different obligation. And it's the same thing over here. The produce should have been Hefker, but he didn't make it Hefker. We're now, not now suddenly going to tax him with an obligation to, uh, to have to give Meiser from this produce. Okay, so which one is it? Is it that the individual has to choose to relinquish their fruits from their ownership in order to fulfill the mitzvah? Or does it happen automatically because there's a divine decree? So let's support the second view. Let's go with the second view. That it would seem that this is Hashem in control of the situation and kind of neutralizes our authority over our own produce during the Shemitah year. Where would you get that from? Apparently, let's, let's see if this works. There's a medrash that comments, the Pasuk tells us, They're those who are powerful individuals. And why are they powerful? Because they do what Hashem wants and they listen to what Hashem says. Who are those people, says the medrash? They're the people who keep Shemitah. Asks the medrash, Why are they called strong people? Think about it. Because the farmer now sees that his field has been made hefker. It's no longer his, in his control. And his trees are open season for anybody. And the fences are broken. And he sees other people eating his produce that he worked so hard for. And he has self-control and and he doesn't say a word. That is what we call Giboyer Koyach. Now, look at the words the Medrash used. It sounds like it's been ripped from his control, that his field has been made Hefka like it or not, right? Listen to the language. He sees that his field is made Hefka and his trees are made Hefka. Mashma, that implies that it happened outside of his control, not by his choice. And that would seem to indicate that as we thought a possible way to explain it, that it's this overriding heavenly decree. And it's not a factor of his choice. Okay, so there we go. We had a dilemma. The fact that we are not allowed to use our own produce during Shemitah, is it something we have to actively, consciously decide to do? Or is it something which is uh, Hashem's decision? But it's not so simple that this Medrash is telling us clearly he sees his field, his Efker, and that means he couldn't control it, it wasn't up to him. It's a divine decree. Not so simple, because we could explain it a different way. The Medrash is describing not what caused this scenario, but what the scenario is. 
when the person looks out over his field during Shemitah, what does he see? He sees that his field has been left open to anybody, as have his trees. The Medrash didn't get into the details of how it reached that point, whether he had to do something actively or whether it happened automatically. It's possible that the Medrash believes that the person made the official declaration, it's all Hefker, or he opened the fences so it should be accessible to everybody. He did what he had to do. And then, then it's later on when he sees what's going on. Even though he was the one who made this possible, he was the one who opened the gates wide. It's when he sees it happening, that's when a kochs inside of him. Similar to the concept that we know that you can never compare the reality of seeing something to just hearing about it. So it is possible that it is not Afkato de Malko. It is possible that the requirement of Shemitah is that the farmer individually selects or elects to let go of his produce. So let's try and support this side of the argument. Now let's try and support the side of the argument that says that in order to fulfill the mitzvah, to let go of the produce of the field, the person has to consciously do something to declare it hefker. Let's find support for that argument. Let's find some support to this opinion. That the fact that we relinquish ownership of the produce in our, in our fields is not because Hashem just does it for us automatically, like it or not, but rather that we consciously make that decision. We'll prove that it's because we see that there's a link between the concept of letting go of the produce of the field during Shemitah and letting go of debts, which also happens during Shemitah. So this is what the Gemara says. The Pasuk tells us this is the detail of Shemitah. That you have to let go of debts. Says the Gemara. There, by virtue of the fact that the Torah uses the term Shemitah twice in the same sentence, tells you it's actually referring to two kinds of Shemitah. One is letting go of the produce of the field that it should be Hefka for everybody. And the other is letting go of debts and Understand that we write off debt that wasn't repaid before the Shemitah. And from that we learn, at the same time where you have all of the rules of Shemitah's Karko, that's when you have the rules of relinquishing debts. And if you go back to the Gemara, you see it's a debate. And this that we've just quoted is the single opinion of Rebbe against the majority opinion of the Rabbanon. The debate is actually only about the last point that Rebbe said, that at the time where you have the Yovel operating in Israel, that's when you also cancel debts during Shemitah. There are, that's what the Rabbanon argue about. But the principal connection between letting go of rights to one's produce and letting go of rights to one's debts, that the Rabbanon acknowledge that that's a, that's a real thing. So therefore, if we understand a little bit more about how the cancelling of debts during Shemitah works, it will help us to understand the nature by which we cancel ownership of produce during the course of Shemitah. So, so let's have a look. What does the Mishnah tell us about cancelling debt? It says the following, and this is where things get really interesting. If a debtor 
returns an, a debt after Shemitah, after the debt should have been cancelled or was cancelled, then the creditor should say, I, 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 I forgive it, I cancel it, it's fine, Shemitah. And says the Mishnah, but if the debtor insists that he still wants to pay, then the person, the creditor can take that money, because the Torah says this unique expression, it's up to your words, you get to decide whether or not you cancel the Shemitah or not, whether or not you cancel the debt or not. Now, if the cancelling of debts was a divine decree and therefore what would happen is that it would be automatic that debts would be cancelled, then it wouldn't make sense to have a conversation about the person who still wants to pay and the other person says, yes, but I forgive the debt. And especially when he says, yeah, but I still want to give you the money. And all the commentators say, it's not just that I want to give you the money. I want to pay the debt. You can't pay a debt if the debt has been cancelled by divine decree. So that lends itself to tell us that it's not an automatic cancellation of all debts when Shemitah occurs. Seeing as the Torah tells us that Shemitah completely neutralizes and cancels the debt, then logic would tell you, it should be forbidden for a borrower to override the Torah and say, but I'm giving you the money back. To return a debt. How can you return a debt? If the Torah said there is no debt, who what do you think you have authority to speak over the Torah? The Torah said there is no debt over here. And look what the Mishnah says. Not only does the Mishnah say, yes, it's fine, you can decide to repay the debt, even though it's Shemitah. The next Mishnah says, that if a person does this, the Chachamim are actually quite pleased with his actions. I mean, calls them mashma. That makes it pretty clear. It's impossible to suggest that cancelling debts during Shemitah is an automatic divine override of the system that you cannot stop. Because if that were the case, if it were the case that it was automatic as Shmita started, the, the sunset of Rosh Hashanah of that year, all debts would automatically be cancelled, then there'd be no way that the person could come along and say, I'd like to still repay the debt. And the Chachamim would say, wow, shkoyach, we think that's brilliant. Because number one, if it was Chavis Gavrihi Alamalve so what is it? Number one, we learn that it is the creditor's responsibility to actually, proactively, cancel the debt. And even then, he doesn't have to say the debt is cancelled. He just has to withdraw from the debt and say, I'm no longer going to chase it. I'm not going to demand it any further. Parenthetically, up here, they will also explain the Rambam's language where he says, He says that mitzvah is for the lender to retract from the debt. That's something, that language would only work if there's a responsibility of the creditor to let go of the debt on Shemitah. It would not work if it was this 
overriding spiritual principle that occurred, like it or not, because then why would we say, why would the Rambam say, Mitzvah say, Okay, so what do we know now? That we have evidence from the story of the cancellation of debts to support the argument that the owner has to relinquish his rights to his produce on the Shemitah year. This will explain more what the Rambam says. If a person comes to the to the creditor and says, I'd like to give you the money back, what does the creditor have to say? Mashmit ani. I withdraw. Ukfarniftarto me many. And you have already been exempt from paying me. And then if the borrower still insists and says, But still I want you to accept this money from me, then you kabel me many. Then he can accept it, because the Torah said he may not pressure the, um, the borrower to pay him. But he didn't do that. He didn't ask for the money, so there's no reason why he can't accept it. It's clear from the Rambam, the mitzvah requirement that the Malve has to relinquish his debt is, is all defined by not chasing the debt, not pressurizing the borrower. So in other words, you only think of as what you're not allowed to do. The Rambam's clarifying it's actually part of the definition of what he has to do. What does he have to do? Not chase the money. That the mitzvah is to abandon debt. In other words, not to demand them. And there's even an opinion that says in Halacha that if a creditor does not ask for payment, the debtor is not required to pay. So just not asking for payment is already enough. And you see this from the Psukim, which says, So you sing over here very clearly that the Torah is telling you, don't chase him, don't pressure him, withdraw your hand. So now that we know that there are those words in the context of Shemitah, which is, don't go chase and pressure the person to pay you back. So therefore we know that the Baal HaChoyv, the, the person who's owed the money, does not or should not go chase after it. The moment the creditor says, I'm not asking for the money, automatically the borrower is no longer required to pay the money because the one depends on the other. The responsibility of the borrower depends on the insistence of the lender. Again, going back to the Rambam's expression, I relinquish, You are now exempt from paying me. You are, as the borrower, now no longer required to Owe me the lender anything. Now here's where it gets very interesting. By this description, all that happens is the relationship between these two people is dissolved. Their relationship was debtor, creditor. Debtor has to make good to the credit and pay money. Creditor says, you no longer have to do that. That dissolves their relationship. But technically, that 
bundle of money that is owed technically still carries some responsibility to be repaid. Because the debt wasn't cancelled, the loyves expectation, sorry, the malves expectation, the creditor's expectation was released. Big difference. If it was Afkata, the Malk of Debeshire said this debt can no longer exist, there would be nothing, no recourse, there'd be no relationship between that money and this creditor. But here we're saying there's no longer a relationship between the debtor and the creditor. The money technically has the spiritual energy of a debt. That's why almost all the poiskim except one, the Yireim, say that there isn't actually a responsibility for the debtor to return money to the creditor. Even before the Malveh says, you don't have to pay me. And in spite of that, so there's no responsibility to repay the debt. And yet when he does, it's still considered repaying a debt. How is that possible? Because in spite of the fact that the debtor is no longer considered a debtor, and therefore he doesn't have to give the money back, the principle that there was a debt is still valid. There is still technically a debt. I was singing to put it differently. When he borrowed, at the moment that this person borrowed money from the other person, a segment of his assets belonged partially already to that other person. And repaying the debt is to square that up and say, here's the portion that actually belonged to you. Fascinating, right? Now, some of the commentators on the Mishnah want to say, no, it's just like it's a mitzvah. There's, there's a mitzvah on the individual as a debtor to pay back money, and that's what's happening over here. We can prove that's not the case. The opinion that says that in spite of it being Shemitah, there is still a responsibility for him to return the debt to the to the Malveh, unless the lender clearly says, no, 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 it's over, it's good. As we said, that's only one opinion. And if you are going to insist that what's happening over here between the debtor and the creditor is that the debtor has a personal responsibility that he has to discharge by paying back this money, even if you were to argue, okay, so the responsibility he has is only rabbinic, still zechiv mamash. It would be a hundred percent responsibility, even if rabbanan. Be completely inappropriate to say the chachamim are proud of him for doing it. You don't say that about something somebody is doing what they're supposed to. We don't tell you we're proud of you because you stopped at the red light. <laughs> when do you get nachas from the way a person behaves when they went beyond what they were required to do indicating that there is no personal responsibility on this borrower to repay the lender even if the lender has not made the official statement to say Meshamit Oni so what do we learn from this two important things number one that there is not afkata damalka when it comes to debt on Shemitah the person who is owed the money has to consciously relinquish his rights to the money 
Number two, the fact that there is a way for the debtor to still repay him is because of the nature of his assets having gone into debt, not because of his personal requirement to repay. Now that we understand that when it comes to the cancellation of debts on Shemitah, it is not an automatic spiritual thing that occurs, but it is a human decision. We can now refer that to Shemitah's Karkois because we said that they are compared. Logic would tell us that when a person has to relinquish the rights to their own produce in their own field, during Shemitah must be along the same lines. Because Shmita must operate identically in the two main arenas where Shmita has practical halachas. Relieving your rights or releasing your rights to debt, releasing your rights to produce. Especially because, as we already mentioned, the Pasuk mentions them both in the same verse. As the Rambam quoted in Sefer HaMitzvah, when it comes to the positive mitzvah to release debt, there the Rambam says, the Tosefta says, it's referring to two types of Shemitah. We already saw this before. One of the types of Shemitah affects debt. One of the types of Shemitah affects produce. So therefore, when the Torah uses the word it means it quite literally. What we're about to say, that's that is the reality of Shemitah. You want to know what Shemitah is? The person has to say something. He has to actually say that he's relinquishing his rights to the produce of his fields. The only difference between Shemitah's Karka and Shemitah's Ksafim is that when it comes to cancelling debts, the mitzvah is specifically to let go of the debt and not to chase and request that the person repay. So the scope of the Shemitah's Ksafim is that the creditor mustn't go looking for the debt. But as we said before, the assets that are owed to that creditor are technically still partially his. Whereas when you're talking about letting go of the produce of the field, where the Torah says, just let go of your field. There, there is no connection back to the owner of the field. It, the, the produce of his field is 100% fair game for whoever comes along and helps themselves. So now that we've gotten our perspective from understanding the cancellation of debt, and we've explained that when a person returns a debt during Shemitah, which they don't have to, that gives tremendous nachas to the Chachamim. So in addition to the fact that it's helped us to clarify the halachic parameters of Shemitah's karaka, we're also going to use it to understand more of what the Mishnah said subsequently. We can understand the conclusion of a Shviz, which is the Mishnah that follows. If a person borrows money from a convert and his children have previously not been Jewish and they also converted. 
If that Gerib passes away, the debtor does not have an obligation to return the debt to his heirs. But if he does, the Chachamim will be pleased. Then, the appropriate way to acquire any movable item is by physically moving it from one place to the next. But, and not verbally, so in other words, if you just say verbally that this is sold, even if you paid money for it, it's not yet good enough. Still says the mission, yet if a person makes a verbal commitment and they follow it through, so yes, you're right, it is yours, because I said it's yours, the Chachamim are pleased with that. So we've got to understand what the link is between these three conversations about paying back a debt in Shemitah, which gives the Chachamim Nachas, and paying back a debt to the heirs of a Ger, and keeping one's word in terms of a sale or a gift or whatever it might be. So what's the link between the two latter sections of the mission and the first one which we were dealing with, which was about cancellation of debts? You can't just say it's because they all have the common phrase that the Chachamim are pleased. That's not enough of a link. There must be a common theme as to why the Chachamim are especially pleased with these behaviors. We don't just group things together because we have the same kind of language that we could use about them. There's got to be a thematic connection. So we've already established when it comes to repaying a loan Shemitah time, it's not a personal responsibility anymore. Shemitah has come, the debtor's responsibility is absolved. It's just that the item, the money, the asset has this link back to the creditor and there is, it's still considered a debt. So if the person now decides that he's going to give the debt back, he hasn't fulfilled a personal obligation because there wasn't one, but he's made the Chachamim happy because he's recognized that this asset actually really does have the definition of being a debt. That same principle, applies equally also to the last two segments of the Mishnah. The person who borrowed money from a ger, and then the ger passed away, has no personal obligation to the ger's descendants if they were born before the conversion. Likewise, if somebody made a verbal undertaking that they were going to sell something or give something to an individual, they actually have no personal responsibility to them. And they are The only thing is he has an item that was now caught up in a particular responsibility because of a particular series of actions. That's why it's the same theme. The Chachamim will be pleased when people recognize that, look, we enmeshed this particular asset in this particular relationship, so it's appropriate to pass it on to those who are on the other side who deserve it. We could take it a step further than that. The Mishnah works in a progressive sense. Each story is more surprising than the preceding story. Generally, when the Mishnah gives various examples of a similar theme, it's because each one is more of a Chiddush, is more insightful than the preceding one. So Tzorich Loima would have to say, that, that must be the order in which these three segments of the Mishnah were, pre- were presented over here as well. 
שבכל אחס מהבובס או אחרונס יש חידש בין ירוח החום עם נויכה המנו, על פי הבובה הקדמס לא. must be that in each one of these three sections, the degree to which the Chachamim are impressed with the person will increase. Now to get ourselves to that point, we're going to first point out something in the Mishnah that when you notice it is an important nuance. Let's look at the second case, which is the person who borrowed money from a Ger. The Ger passed away and now he's not required to repay the children of the Ger because They're not technically family because they're all converted together. Why did the Mishnah have to say, don't return it to the sons? Had the Mishnah only said, should somebody have borrowed from a person who converted together with his children and then he passed away, the Chachamim would be pleased if he returned that debt. We'd automatically know that obviously then you didn't have to. So why does the Mishnah say, you don't have to do it? And if you do it, the Chachamim are impressed. We could have worked that out. Likewise, in the final section of that Mishnah, it says, The appropriate way for any person to acquire a movable object is by moving it. And yet, if a person didn't actually do the action, but they upheld their verbal commitment, then the Chachamim are pleased with them. So there too, any movement doesn't seem to make sense. Kakushis and Mephorshim, as many of the commentators point out, Surely the goal of the Mishnah at that point is to tell you how great it is when a person keeps their word. This is Mishnah Shavias. And this particular Mishnah, is not, it's not the place where we're talking about how transactions happen. What this Mishnah wants to say is, look at that, when a person keeps their word, big deal. And by the same token, It's not only when it comes to acquiring objects that a person could keep their word. There are millions of cases where a person could keep their words. So why did the Mishnah first have to tell us that the correct way to acquire an item is by moving it? And then tell us, but if you keep your verbal commitment, great. Let's tell us straight. If a person keeps their word, the Chachamim are pleased. Babir Bozes, the explanation is this. Pashtus who... What do we mean when we say that the Chachamim are pleased with somebody? It means, It means that the Chachamim love this individual for the way he's behaved, and his behavior is good in their eyes. Now that can't just be because they did something that's kind of a sidebar, valuable, nice thing that they did. Or they avoided some sidebar prohibition that they might have done. Even something he wasn't required to do, like giving the item back to the gear, to the to the ears to the, um, to the gear. The chachamim would be pleased with the way a person behaves if the core of that behavior is impressive. Meaning this. Let's look at our case. talking about debts. Why are the Chachamim pleased with the person who goes to repay his debt when it's already Shemitah? What did he do? He did something good. Something he didn't have to do. Where is the value in 
the debt itself. It's not chitid some nasa. Okay, listen, I'm not going to pay you the debt, but I'll give you, I'll buy you a coffee. Okay, so maybe the Chachamah would be happy that he's trying to placate the guy for the fact that he's not required to pay. No, he's paying the debt back. Now, when it comes to any interaction, specifically a financial interaction, like in this case alone, the three components. There's the creditor. There's the debtor. And there's the money, which is at play. It's the money that creates the bond and relationship between the lender and the borrower. So when a person returns their debt, despite the fact that Shemitah made it technically un- unnecessary, the Chachamim have Nachasan from all three perspectives. When you look at it from the perspective of the creditor who accepts this person's wish, I, I want to pay you back. He accepts it. He, in order to have reached this point, did a mitzvah. How did this happen in the first place? He obviously went out to lend somebody money. That's a good thing. That's a mitzvah. People have, the chachamim have nachas from that. He has a yid. He was helping another yid. And why do we have extra nachas? The best reason that we're happy is the Malve who did a mitzvah doesn't land up losing out financially because of it. He gets his money back. We're happy for him. With regards to the borrower, because the Malve was the source of his help, like the expression in the Gemara, don't throw a stone into the well that you drank from. So the Loive got something beneficial from the Malve. So there the Chachamim are pleased to see. They are pleased to see that the lawyer feels a debt of gratitude. He's got to pay back. Doesn't matter that I don't have to. I have to. And besides the practical value in this for the borrower, that he'd be able to borrow again because he won't have a bad credit score. So there's value to the malve and there's value to the loyveh. And then when you analyze the actual item itself, the money, because as we described before, technically this money is under the banner of debt. Even at the time when the debtor is no longer required to pay it. So obviously the Chachamim are going to be pleased that that choyv that still exists has been settled. The second example, the person who borrowed from a convert who converted together with his children. He doesn't have to return the debt to those heirs. But if he did, the Chachamim are happy. Why? Again, the Chachamim are not happy just because some side issue happened. Oh, this guy felt bad for the air, so he decided to give them money. And he was worried that maybe if he didn't give them the money back, maybe they'd say, what was the point of becoming Jewish? The community doesn't care about us. So he wanted to facilitate that they'd still feel good about the Jewish identity. Actually, the value lies in the nature of the debt. But in this case, only two out of the three aspects. The only two who stand to benefit or give the, the Chachamim pleasure 
Nachas is the borrower and the money. Because the borrower received benefit from the ger, and he borrowed money with intention to return it. Now once the ger passes away, he has no requirement to repay the loan because there's nobody to repay it to. Still, the fact is when he took that money in his mind, it was clear that the purpose of this money was in order to return it. The fact is, this money, how did it land up in his possession? As a debt. So it would be appropriate to give it back. So he would discharge that original undertaking that he made to pay back the money. Good for him. Not good for the Malba. The Malba is not in the picture anymore. He passed away. And now in a similar vein, the money itself benefits. The reality is you can't call this a debt because there's nobody around who it's still owing to. The person who it was owing to is no longer here. But as we already said before, this money was brushed with the color of debt. So the fact that this money doesn't really belong to the borrower, my battle, what changed that? And so therefore, for the benefit of the money itself, it should be returned. Now, the only potential destination of where to return the money is to the converts' children. So that they shouldn't feel that since we became Jewish, you know, they, they, why, they, they, they don't care for us and they don't pay us back. So therefore, so that's who he'll give the money back to, and that's what makes the Chachamim happy. But there you can't include the third component, the lender. There's no positive on behalf of the Malve. Because he's passed away. And there is no scenario of a Ger who passes away. In fact, there's no scenario ever of a person who passes away who becomes the lender. But certainly not in this case because they're not even his true heirs. That's why we understand why the Mishnah specifically added don't give the money to the children. Even though it's self-evident from the fact that should he have returned the money, all he gets is a pat on the back from the rabbis, not the fulfillment of a mitzvah. Why do they still say don't give the money to the children? Because the Mishnah wants to emphasize that there is nothing that could link that borrower to those children. Not only technically according to Halacha, because you could say technically, halachically, they do not now replace the lender and become creditors. And therefore he doesn't owe them anything. And the truth is he doesn't even have a proper relationship or connection with them, even from the perspective of what will happen afterwards, that the Chachamim will be impressed that he paid them back. Now we can see how the Mishnah progresses from the story of the person who will return a debt even when it's Shemitah. And then not only that, but you'll even have a case of a person who return a debt to people who are not technically the heirs of the creditor who died. But it's an increasingly impressive story. 
In your the idea of the Chachamim being happy with somebody does not only work when all three facets of the particular case are addressed in the person's actions. Like a person who, the, the first case, right? He, he's satisfying the Malve and he's taking care of his responsibilities as a Loibe and he's taking care of the Chayv. And the Chiddush of the mission at that point is that the Chachamim will be pleased with a person whose actions only affect two areas of the potential three areas of connection. Even that is valuable. What's the last one? The Mishnah says every movable object should be acquired by moving it. But anybody who keeps their word even before an action was taken, the Chachamim are pleased with that. Now, this is not so simple. It's not just that there's a sidebar issue. There was a transaction that was supposed to take place. Oh, and by the way, it's a good thing to keep your word. That's why we're happy with you because you're giving your word. The Chiddush of this part of the mission is to tell you there's something about the actual item that was on sale that is settled here, and that's what makes the Chachamim happy. This should have been sold, and now it's being given to the person, even though it was only a, a, a verbal commitment, and that gives the Chachamim Nachas. But the truth is, there's nothing about this that satisfies a responsibility of either the seller or of the buyer. The buyer did not move the object as he was supposed to in order to show that he's taking ownership. Even if he gave money, there is no responsibility yet from the seller to actually part with his asset. There's nothing yet that has created a relationship of buyer and seller until that object is moved. More than that. When this person keeps his word, that doesn't ensure that something will be to the benefit of either buyer or seller. Let's say that the person didn't keep his word. The customer may not lose anything. Because even if he did pay him, he'll get his money back. He doesn't really lose. He'll be disappointed, but he doesn't lose. The only issue at hand over here is the object should have been sold and it wasn't. Because what happens is the minute the conversation occurs, now there is some linkage between this item and that buyer. Much more so, of course, if he gives money, then there's definitely a connection between that item and the buyer. That's what the Mishnah wants us to know. Even in this scenario, where there really is no benefit to the buyer, there's no benefit to the seller, the only issue is that there's an item that was allocated for a particular cause, and now we're seeing it through. Where's only one issue that's going to be resolved by this person fulfilling his verbal commitment, that is something that makes the Chachamim happy. Now that we have built our entire conversation around the nature of cancelling debt during the Shemitah, it's important to note that it does appear to be a self-contradictory element to cancellation of debt during Shemitah. Because Michad gives on the one end, as we've discussed, what is the nature of, uh, of um, 
relinquishing debt during Shemitah. Stepping back, I have no claim. So that's like a, a lack, a, a vacuum, a negative in a sense. And that's why if a person does still pay back the money, that's amazing. It's something that the Chacham are already happy about because there was nothing there demanding from them. You'll see a similar thing with the nature of relinquishing the produce of our fields. All of those psukim indicate one thing. The land should not be worked. Stepping back, passive. Lidach, yet on the other hand, Yet, you know what you see that's interesting? In order for that stepping back to occur, a person has to do something proactive, they have to say something. They've got to say words. He has to say, I excuse you from the debt. As we pointed out, right? It's got to be verbal. There's even an opinion that says that to say those words, that we cancel debt, is the requirement, the mitzvah midaraisa. And the Mishnah actually builds on this concept of saying what needs to be said when a person is relinquishing their rights. So the Mishnah says, if a person was a, unfortunately, Killed somebody by accident. And he has to go to the Ere Miklot. The people they wanted to give him honor. He should say, don't give me honor, I'm a murderer. If they say, we don't care, we still want to give you uh, honor anyway. Same thing the Mishnah says. They accept, he has to accept their argument because their dvar depends on what they say. And that's where he's warning them not to have a mistaken identity and to give him honor where he doesn't deserve it. Like the Yerushalmi explains. Like the Yerushalmi says, imagine, people want to give somebody honor because they imagine that he knows two Masechtas of Gemara. And he only knows one. So what do we see? This fascinating element of Shemitah that the construct of Shemitah as much as it is about what we don't do, we don't work, we don't take the product of our fields, we don't collect debts, all of it is defined by what we say. Debt is forgiven. And this really makes sense most beautifully when you look at it through the lens of Hasidus. The explains that Shemitah relates to Sfera Samalchus. Has both of these two elements that we've just described. What's not happening, the passive relinquishing of control and speech. Relinquishes self. It's got absolute bitl to the to the highest spheres that precede it. And as we well know, is the realm of speech. That's why the seventh year that relates to the seventh Midah, which is the Midah of Malchus, has these two elements. It's on the one hand, quiet, 
Nobody's working. A bit of a letting go of control. Bitul, the land must lie fallow. Malchus, like Malchus, which has nothing of its own. Don't get involved. Don't be proactive. Don't plant the field. Don't collect your debts. And at the same time, there's a mitzvah to say the words Devar Hashmita, because that's the nature of Malchus. Now we can go back to that What is the definition of those people who have the guts to keep Shmita even when they see their own things being taken by other people? Dvar. They always say Dvaray, they do his word, they listen to his words. They don't use the more common types of expressions that they do what Hashem instructs. Because Shmita is specifically related to speech. And as the Medrash proves, how do we know that that Pasuk is specifically talking about farmers during the Shmita? Because Neymar Khan, I say, Devoroi. And Neymar Alon was said, Devar Hashmita. It links the word specifically, Devoroi. Just like the word Dover in the Pasuk Vazet Dvar Hashmita is talking about people that keep Shmita, so too, Av Dover Haomar Khan likewise, Oise must be talking about people who keep Shmita. Now, now, who, now we can understand why the conclusion of the entire Masechta Shviz is, Anybody who keeps their word, the Chachamim are pleased. Why? Because it's talking about Shviz, and Shviz is the power of words. Therefore, when we learn about the laws of Shviz, the Gemara tells us whenever you engage verbally and in the study of a particular set of halachas, it's as if you fulfill them. That will hasten time, like it says in Tilim, that David will want our land and the Mephorshim said that means you'll will fulfill Shmita. Shafta Shvis Yaakov, the return of the uh, uh, of the of the captives of Yaakov, Asova Asovas the captives of Yaakov will come home. As the pastor continues, Hashem will give us good and, and great yield of the harvests in Israel. And we as the Jewish people will be powerful, will have the gumption to be able to stand up for what Hashem expects of us. will be those who uphold and keep the, the Shemitah. We'll be able to keep Shmita in Eretz Yisrael, and not just as a Dirabonan, but Mina Torah, because of Mamish, and that should happen speedily. When the Abishta fulfills his commitment, the Abishta's word is the end of Golos. And then the Abishta will be the king of, of the whole world. With the coming of Mashiach, who will lead us speedily back to our land, to Eretz Yisrael.